Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Rinquist. I serve as the executive pastor here at Deer Creek Church. And tonight, as we observe Good Friday, I want to do something very simple uh, for a short period of time. This sermon won't take very long. Amen? <laughs> it's, uh, it's not complicated to understand. In fact, it's a one-word sermon. My goal tonight is to help you understand the entire Bible, the essence of our faith, and the climax of all of human history by sharing one word with you. One single word that if you understand it and you embrace it, your life will be changed forever. You know, people always say you under-promise and you over-deliver. Um, but that doesn't sound like any fun, so. All of this in one single word. But before we get to that word, let's, let's pray together and ask God to be at work among us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we reflect tonight on your crucifixion, would you fill our hearts with gratefulness? Would you do a work in us that only grace can do? Would you help us, as the Apostle Paul prayed, to have strength to comprehend with all the saints around the world right now what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with the, all the fullness of God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our outline for tonight is going to be very simple. We're just going to be looking at three things. We're going to be looking at the scene of the crucifixion. We're going to be looking at the statement, which is one, this one word. And then we're going to be looking at the significance. What does it mean? Why does it matter? So first, let's look at the scene. Let's read the scene of the crucifixion together from the Gospel of John. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. And I want you to picture this scene in your mind as it unfolds here in these verses. Again, it's chapter, John chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. If you have a Bible, you can open up or follow along on the screen. It says this, starting in verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. 
This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the scene of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospel of John. It's, it's really a tragic scene, uh, but there's a lot of interesting things happening here in this scene. We see the, the sign that's put above his, his head that says he's the king of the Jews. We see prophecies being fulfilled. There's this touching exchange between his mother and John. But did you catch the word? Did you catch the one word that's so important that I said would explain so much? Okay, I tricked you a little bit. At the end of this passage, there's a statement that's translated as three words in English, but it's only one word in Greek. In verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished. But that's a translation, because English didn't exist at the time, so he couldn't have said, it is finished. What he said is, tetelestai. That's the word we're going to be looking at tonight. Now, tetelestai, which is translated as it is finished, is a very interesting word, but to understand it, we need to do a grammar lesson. Who likes grammar? <laughs> a couple of people. I do not like grammar, but this is very interesting, and you will see why in just a moment. You see, different languages have different ways of communicating the nature of reality, and one aspect of this is verb tense. I told you this would be exciting, isn't it? In English, we have three verb tenses. So we have the past, the present, and the future. So I could say, I went to the store past, I'm going to the store present, or I will go to the store future. Makes sense, right? Well, in Greek, you actually have other tenses that they use to communicate reality. Actually, instead of three tenses, there are seven tenses, verb tenses in Greek. And I will now explain to you all seven verb tenses in Greek. No. All, all, all this just is background to say, when Jesus said this word, tetelestai, it was not in the past tense. It was finished. Or in the present tense, I am finishing it. Or in the future tense, it will be finished. It's actually in something called the perfect tense. Again, I know this is very exciting, but as boring as this grammar lesson has been, it's extremely important. And we don't have this in English, 
but the perfect tense of a verb communicates a completed action that produced results that continue until today. Pastor John Stott explained the meaning of this word very simply. He said, Tetelestai, being in the perfect tense, means that it has been and will forever remain finished. Maybe you see why this is significant. Something happened that reverberates until today, like a, a stone that's thrown in the water and the ripples move out from there. What, what Jesus is saying, what this word spoken by this man in this scene is saying is very significant. What Jesus is saying is that it is forever finished. Charles Spurgeon said of this word to Telestai, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all the other words that were ever spoken past or ever can be spoken present or future to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain to it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. Or as another pastor put it, three words in English, one word in Greek, tetelestai, the greatest word from the greatest man on the greatest day in all eternity. Tetelestai, it has been and will forever remain finished. What does that mean? What does that mean practically? What's the significance of this that brings us to the significance? We had the scene, the statement, and now the significance. And does anyone know what special day falls on today, other than Good Friday? Any accountants in the room? It's tax day. So we're talking about grammar and taxes tonight. If someone asks you how the service was, you can tell them that. It's tax day. It's actually on Monday because of a holiday, but today is typically tax day. And when I turn in my tax documents, I usually get a message. I do it digitally and I get a message. And it says, thank you for your tax return. The IRS will be billing you or giving you, you know, depending on your tax return, um, kind of what is due to you. And I get this little message when I turn in my tax documents. Now, in the ancient world, there were no digital drop boxes, but they did get a message when they paid their taxes or they paid a bill or they paid a debt. We actually have papyri, which is kind of an ancient paper, fragments dating all the way back to the first century. And guess what is written on the top of those debts? Tetelestai, or the shortened form of it, telos. I said the, the entire sermon would be about one word. It's finished. It's paid in full, is what they're saying. So what's being said here in the crucifixion scene through this one word is that in the death of Jesus Christ, our debt was paid in full. To state it more comprehensively, that in the death of Jesus Christ, those who are in Christ, the work of salvation is complete. Justice was satisfied. The curse of death was canceled. 
The guilt of sin was removed. The stain of sin was washed. The law of God was kept. The prophecies fulfilled. The shadows in the Old Testament found their substance. The debt of sin was paid. The final sacrifice was made. The defeat of Satan was secured. The forgiveness of sin secured. A new covenant was created. The veil in the temple no longer separated. The ransom was paid. And true love was most brilliantly displayed. Do you see it? All in one word. For those who put their faith in Jesus, it is forever finished to Telestai. We racked up the bill, and the debt was so high that we had no hope of paying it, but Jesus paid the balance. To Telestai, it is forever finished, paid in full. And now we are a people marked by this one great act, the finished work of Christ on the cross. We are a people of good news, the gospel. We're not a people forgiven at some point in the past, but with perfect tense, forever forgiveness. We are a people, you could say, who don't have to pay their taxes. Spiritually speaking, you have to pay your taxes on Monday, but And our entire lives flow from this one great word spoken by Jesus. Do you realize that right now you are forgiven of all of your sins in the past, but also in the present and in the future? You will never be more loved by God than you are right now. And make no mistake, this is a reality that not only we desperately need, but the world around us desperately needs. I've heard it said that we live in a culture that recognizes sin, but has no avenues for forgiveness. One internet culture reporter summarized this really well. She said, The state of modern outrage is a cycle. We wake up mad and we go to bed mad. And in between, the only thing that might change is what's making us angry. The one gesture that could offer substantive change or at least provide a way forward, forgiveness, seems perpetually beyond our reach. In the public sphere, we're constantly being asked to weigh in on the question of forgiveness as a cultural process. The consensus thus far has been that American culture has no room for the concept. In a tweet from March 2021, Atlantic writer Elizabeth Brunig wrote, As a society, we have no, absolutely no coherent story, none whatsoever, about how a person who's done wrong can atone. It's not an interesting word she chose. Or make amends and retain some continuity between their life and identity before and after the mistake. And then this I find fascinating. In other words, everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven. And no one knows how to negotiate forgiveness at a cultural level. Everyone wants forgiveness, and no one's being forgiven. 
Friends, we have a better story. We have what the world wants. And oftentimes we we go around living as if we want what the world has. But we actually have what the world wants. We have to tell us die. We have a story that is brutally honest, that says, yes, our sins are very real, and they're very serious. They actually deserve death. But we also have a story that is beautifully redemptive, that those sins were paid for by Jesus on the cross, and we now have the Spirit of God living in us, renewing us every single day. And this should lead us to delight. Jesus says, your sins and mine are forever forgiven, paid in full. A couple weeks ago, I was in Florida for a church planting conference. We actually were were in Boca Raton um, at Spanish River Church, which is actually the church that planted Deer Creek Church in 1987. So we were there, there for a conference with uh, really leaders around the country and around the world talking about church planting. And uh, we had a break in the conference activities. So we went to the Atlantic Ocean. You know, we were right there. We couldn't pass it up. So I, I ran out into the water. Um, the locals were looking at me kind of strange because they were like, it's March. You don't, really go, you don't really go swimming in the ocean in March. But hey, we're there. I'm going. And... For a while, I kind of splashed around. My wife was there, too, so I wasn't, I wasn't by myself splashing around, but <laughs> just having fun. And then eventually, there wasn't really anything to do. Um, I didn't have a board. I wouldn't know how to use it anyways. But. So I, w- I was just overwhelmed by the vastness of this thing. You know, water as far as the eye can see, it's so deep, you just... You can never reach the bottom of it, or I could never reach the bottom of it. The waves are just so powerful. Nothing could stop them from rolling in. And when you're in the water and you don't have anything to do, eventually I just kind of sat there and floated. Just enjoying the reality that was this massive ocean so far beyond me, so far outside of my control. And if I could try and summarize what I've been trying to say tonight in a word picture, I would say that the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross, the work that he forever finished, is a little bit like that ocean. You can't use it up. It's too abundant. It it won't run out. It's inexhaustible. The ocean is so big, if you think about this, it's so big that nobody can own it. It has to be free. And you could never, on your own, reach the other side of it. At the end of the day, all you can do when you're in the ocean is just float. Friends, tonight, rest in the work that Jesus accomplished for you. His perfect tense Tetelestai work for you that goes on and on and on forever. We will never reach the other side of it. It never runs out. 
we could never plumb the depths of it. And it's completely free. Stop working to earn his favor. Let go of the guilt that you feel for the wrongs you have done and recognize that the bill has already been paid. Just rest in it. I'll close with this. Charles Spurgeon said of this passage, Christ has said, it is finished. And we must cease to work too. Not only with our hands, but with our souls. Working no more for life, for that is given. Working no more for justification, for that is concluded. But today, resting in Christ, for it is finished. There is nothing for God to do. It is finished. There is nothing for you to do. It is finished. Christ need not bleed. It is finished. You need not weep. It is finished. God the Holy Spirit need not delay because of your unworthiness, nor need you delay because of your helplessness. It is finished. Every stumbling block is rolled out of the road. Every gate is open. The bars of brass are broken. The gates of iron are burst asunder. It is finished. Come and welcome. Come and welcome. Friends, rest tonight in the telestai grace of Jesus. The whole Bible in one word. The essence of our faith. It is forever finished. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice that forgives all of our sins forever. May we be a people who are shaped by that forgiveness, that we would turn from sin and become more like you. Also, make us a forgiving people who demonstrate your love to those around us. As we respond now in worship, we recognize that you have done it all. We give you all glory and honor and praise. Amen.